Hello and welcome to another episode of Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. I'm pretty sure that we all can agree that we are in the middle of a tech boom. Tech startups are popping up everywhere, cars are becoming more and more sophisticated and will probably all be electric soon, the medical field is making insane advances in medicine, and AI, or artificial intelligence, has become a part of our daily lives. While many industries in the tech world are growing at record paces and becoming quite saturated, others are lagging behind. I'm sure you can guess which field I'm referring to. Conservation. What is the next wave of tech for wildlife and nature? Well, that question is what today's episode is all about. Today, we're sitting down with Alex Robillard, who's an expert on using AI for wildlife conservation through machine learning. Don't worry, if you have no idea how machine learning or artificial intelligence actually work, Alex breaks it all down and gives the 101 level explanation because I asked for it. <laughs> Alex shares his story of growing up in a broken home, which forced him to spend a lot of time out in nature while playing Pokemon on his Game Boy. His early experiences fostered his passion for tech and the outdoors, and he knew from a young age that he wanted a career that connected the two. Although he barely graduated from high school, Alex will soon be Dr. Robillard, PhD. I'm very excited to bring you this new topic on the Rewildology podcast, and we'll keep you all in the loop as more techie things develop in Alex's world. If you're liking the show, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening and reach out on Rewildology's social media pages. You can easily find links in this episode's show description. All right, friends, here's my conversation with Alex. Awesome, Alex. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and talking about a super cool topic that I have not had a chance to dive into. So I know I'm going to learn so much from you, and I'm sure that everybody listening will as well, because you are a tech expert. Like, what? <laughs> and this whole new big wave that's coming into conservation. So very excited to hear all about that. And before we get to that, though, obviously big tech wasn't around when you were young and didn't know that this was going to be the journey that you're going to go down so enlighten us tell us where you grew up and what was your childhood like and and how did you get through that when you realized that tech is what you wanted to do yeah that's a uh, that's a great question it's funny because i growing up always seemed to be kind of involved with tech in different ways, but didn't really think about it that way, mostly through like gaming. And a lot of my childhood was really spent sort of at this like really strange intersection of tech, gaming, and just kind of being outside. I grew up in Chester County, Pennsylvania. This area is uh, known for the the Wyeths. Uh, the Wyeths are a, a family of painters that started with N.C. Wyeth and then kind of, you know, through the ages, it was N.C. Wyeth and Andrew Wyeth and then Jamie Wyeth. And they painted and, and illustrated these, for lack of a better term, like epically beautiful paintings of just the whole area. It mm. really inspired them. They, they started this thing called the Brandywine School of, of Art 
And um, I grew up in that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sounds so, gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, abso it absolutely is. So some of this was voluntary. I, I would go outside a lot, but but some of it was involuntary. Uh, in my family growing up, one of my family members, unfortunately, was suffering from alcoholism. This illness really, I would say, created a hostile situation. And so to kind of escape that, I would literally take my Game Boy <laughs> and, like, whether I wanted to or not, I was I was heading out and, and roaming around the train tracks and the, the rivers and the, the hills of Chester County. Yeah. Uh, you, you, so, so usually, though, the game that I had, it's funny, I, I was thinking about this this morning in, in anticipation for our talk. I played uh, Pokemon a lot, which, you know, in that game, you're essentially doing the same thing. You're exploring the world. And, and so, you know, I had this on my Game Boy and I would, I would go out and, and play it and kind of walk around. But I actually would play that game. I mean, I would play it like night and day until my battery would die. And, and at a certain point, like, or, or like, you know, you would, you would stop and look up and go, okay, well, what now, right? And, and I would kind of explore the area around me. And uh, yeah, I just became enthralled with the outdoor world and, and, and sort of what nature had to offer and sort of made that cognitive link between like, oh, the creatures in this game are creatures and they all have like powers and abilities and, and things like that. But like they evolve too, that's kind of interesting. But then sort of like connecting that to seeing like, birds and turtles and frogs and snakes in like their actual natural habitat and sort of thinking, wait, well, if these things have like attributes and like characteristics, what do these real versions of them have? And so I, from a young age, I was really like, my compass started pointing towards uh, this trajectory of being like, I really want to know what these animals are, what they're doing. Uh, how they're spending their time, how many of them there are, <laughs> you know, just all the questions that just growing up, like I said, in this in this picture book-esque area would, would involve. Nice. Yeah. So it's all coming together for you. And I'm sure at the time, it probably didn't even seem like that too. Isn't it amazing how when we get older that we reflect on things and you start to like connect the pieces? Because I'm sure it sounds like a very traumatic time, it, you know, for you at such a formidable time. And... It almost seemed like nature, it's, at least tell me if I'm wrong, but it almost sounded like nature was an escape. It was a safe place to go where you could get out of an unfortunate situation and, and explore and connect with nature that maybe a lot of other children didn't have that, for lack of a better term, opportunity to really connect on that level. So, so what, what's that intersection where you're like, okay, I, I see this amazing connection between my favorite game that I'm loving. Like I'm catching these Pokemon, which actually are based <laughs> on real critters. Yep. And I'm in nature all the time. So the, what was the next step that you ended up pursuing after that? Sure. Well, it's funny because it was an escape for sure, but it quickly became an obsession where mm -hmm. I... Like during the summers, I would like want to go to nature camps and things like that. Uh, locally, there's a, a group called, called the Brandywine River Association, and they would run these nature camps. And, and one of the things that I thought was so fascinating was they did a really excellent job of you know getting kids outside, getting them dirty and messy, which I think is so important, but connecting what, what we were learning in sort of in a classroom to sort of this, I would call it indigenous knowledge. So mm -hmm. the, the region that I grew up in originally is the Lene Lenape peoples, and we learned about them as kids, which I think was way ahead of what a lot of places were doing at the time. And I'm really, really appreciative of it because, you know, I learned, I think, like fairly like vital knowledge that is, you know, somewhat lost. So kind of engaging with this, I'll, I'll call it um, a, a applied exposure to nature, I think when I was young was really, really important. 
Um, and then I kind of lost some of that in middle school and high school. You know, I didn't get as many of those experiences as I as I wanted. I was still going outside, still spending a lot of time outside. But you know, it was like, here's a textbook. What's your GPA? And like, why aren't you making this connection? When it's like, if you just like take me outside and show me some of these things, it might help. So I barely graduated high school. For, there's, and I think it's really important to under, underline this because I knew what I really wanted to do, but I also had other things going on in my life. Um, at the time, I remember my, my guidance counselor in high school kind of looked at me and was like, are you sure like college or any of this is for you? And I was like, I can't believe you're saying that to me. Like, like how I do like, I take that? <laughs> yeah, I was like, there's like several thousand colleges in the United States or, or wherever, you know, I was like, I, I, you would hope that if I wanted to try to get into one of them, I could, right? It wasn't any of that. Because, like, that's what I told them. I was like, I would like to go to college and study, you know, zoology or ecology. I, I knew from day one that's what I wanted. And I was really fortunate in that. Um, and so originally when I did get into college, I went to uh, Michigan State, which uh, has a really good zoology program, but uh, is also very far from home, which, you know, at the time, I was like, that's an easy buy. <laughs> Send me away. <laughs> um, but I kind of jumped into it first and didn't really um, think it through because I was so kind of eager to to get away from home for a bit. And, um, you know, I spent a year there, learned quite a bit, but it was expensive and it was far. And, I, you know, I started missing home. And so I came back home for a year. I went to uh, Westchester University for, for a year. So that's my first transfer. You're, you're going to keep the count <laughs> up because uh, there's a couple of them. So I came home, went to Westchester University for a year. Great. Again, uh, another great school, had a good biology program. But when... I originally kind of came back. I was at that point feeling a little bit lost because, you know, feel, when you when you leave a situation like that, you feel a little bit like a failure, right? It's like, oh, you went off to college and then it's like, well, now you're back home. And I think that the one thing that didn't change throughout that whole time was I still knew exactly what I wanted to do. And, you know, I started trying to like make everything helped me get to my ultimate goal, which was to, to get a research type position. At that point, I'd kind of like been exposed to it a little bit at Michigan State, and I knew that I did want to work with animals, but I didn't really know in what capacity. And so I like started like working at a pet store, thinking like that was going to be like really insightful, which it was in its own way, but not, not in the way that I thought it would be. But it did give me this view of I certainly didn't want to do that with my life. I knew, I knew that both like veterinary work because I knew that it would kind of entail a lot of this more serious sort of like, uh, I, don't, I don't want to say depressing, but like, you know, it would entail a lot of this sad work. It wasn't does. wasn't really what I wanted. And then the other thing too is I knew that anything sort of around sort of like, particularly livestock management, things like that. Like, I don't know. I mean, I eat meat and, and things like that, but I, I'm not super comfortable with treating living things, as, even like ants. I can't treat them as like just numbers. Yeah. So I went to Westchester. Um, I did work at this pet store and it was horrible. But while I was doing that, I was like, okay, well, I don't want to do that. Uh, so what can I do? Like, what does real research look like? Because I saw some of it at a Michigan State, but I was like, that was mostly through the lens of like a zoology club and like talking to some professors, which was cool and insightful. But yeah, I, I was like, what, like, what does it look like to me personally? How, how can I put myself in that situation and experience it? Because I then started realizing like, oh, like that's the biggest, that's the trick is like, you need to experience it. <laughs> um, 
And so I met a professor named uh, Jessica Shuttlebauer, who was a new professor, and she was looking for basically anybody to help her <laughs> with these uh, soil samples and collection of these soil samples at this habitat called a serpentine pine barren. And um, these are super cool areas. They're like essentially like, I might get this mixed up, but parts of the Earth's core essentially will shoot up through, through the mantle and then like into the crust. Uh, and what? just like squirt out just a little bit of the crust. And so that area creates this like really super thin layer of just like bedrock, of mm. bedrock that just kind of like lays there under. And so then the soil that sits on top of it is usually really sandy. And it's only like a, a every anything from like a few millimeters to like a few inches thick. And it'll Whoa. be like this across like a huge habitat. And so like trees can't really like root there but like other like wildflowers and stuff like that can pull up like really interesting sort of organic different organic compounds that allows like you know i don't know like special kinds of orchids and things like that to live there um she essentially was like hey do you want to come help help me with this and also like do you want to do it for free and i was like yeah i'm already working this other job that i hate uh <laughs> for money so i was like i can absolutely help you for free because this sounds great and it gets me outside the fun the other fun thing is uh the habitat actually ended up being adjacent to my friend's property that that like his family grew up on and i grew up on as a kid and in high school like you know would run around and get in trouble and stuff like that <laughs> on the on the property so i ended up literally you know after i would be done work just walk over to his house <laughs> like <laughs> nice. walk, walk across the borderline over to his house and be like hey how's it going but yeah, we were doing transects for essentially trying to do all kinds of things like measure uh, respiration levels uh, from the different plant communities in that area and also measuring the density of uh, the briar bushes around there. So that that was kind of a, um, a really interesting uh, first experience was, you know, it, basically a lot of this habitat is being encroached on by by briars. Uh, for those that don't aren't familiar with that term, it's just like uh, thorny bushes. <laughs> and so it was like, all right, well, we got to plant the transect to go all the way across. But um over there is three feet thick briars. And it's like, who's, you or me, who's going? Like, you know, we were like drawing straws to do it. It was so funny. And, and you know, she was super patient. It was like my first time ever doing any of that stuff. And uh, yeah, you know, I came, I basically came away from like that first field experience, like muddy, bloody, and I couldn't have been happier. <laughs> I, was, I was like, this was one of the best days uh, that I've ever had. And I was like, people get paid to do this? This is incredible. And so, you know, I spent time doing that, like sieving uh, soil samples and, and, and whatnot. And um, yeah, it was just a really nice first experience while I was there. But it also got me to thinking about how I was still sort of in this situation where I was learning everything still out of a textbook. And uh, I was like, what are the odds that like somebody is doing this in a different way that can help me understand this a little better? Because at that point, my experiences, like, uh, as a kid at the BVA, I was like, that really stuck with me. Those are things that I remember still. What was so visceral about that? And I, th I really think it was just the, the experience of doing it hands-on. Well, it's funny. So when I started sort of looking for, I was like, I want to find a program that really engages with you hands-on. I want, I want something that feels a little bit more immersive. It's not just like, I'm a major at this college. And I got really lucky. So, so my dad is from upstate New York. And I was like kind of describing to him what I wanted to do. And he was like, have you checked out the environmental school at Syracuse? He, he, and like, this is as, as a family, like lifelong Syracuse sports fans, Gorange. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it's, we like, 
I was like, no, I didn't even know that was a thing. And he's like, oh yeah, just go like, go look at it. <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> and I was like, this is exactly what I, where I want to be. I was like, oh my gosh, it like blew my mind. And so the, I, I inevitably applied to and got into uh, the SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry, uh, which it, although it is a college associated with Syracuse University, so I have like a joint degree from both. Spoiler, I graduated. But, <laughs> but it is its own sort of self-contained college. It's really in, an interesting situation. It, it's a connected, they're all one campus, but it really has its own sort of uh, culture, all its own. And, 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 you know, the funny thing is it's like to give you an idea of like what this, what this place is like, it's, it's very special. It's very special to me, but it is so outdoorsy and so like the idea that you would learn if just out of a textbook is like, the exact opposite mm. of this place's mantra. The, the, the SUNY ESF is uh, every single lab you have period, time outside. That hands-on, that ability to go outside and go, oh, like these are the insects that I'm studying. Or, oh, like these are the trees. Like I, I've hugged a lot of trees. Like, like li <laughs> literally hugged a lot of trees to get their like DBH and, yeah. and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, it was just a complete, you know, 360 to what I, what I had experienced in a classroom prior to that. And it was life-changing. I, I uh, was exposed to a professor there. Uh, his name is Dr. James Gibbs. And he uh, essentially is a, like a, a rock star scientist. That's the best way I can put him. He's been there for, for quite some time. And he's essentially the guy responsible for almost all of the Galapagos tortoise work and has done some really, really interesting things uh, as well with snow leopards out in the Altai. Mm. And I took his conservation biology class and my major there was conservation biology. So I, I was like already kind of like set on doing it. But when I took his course, he shared his field experiences, which sounded absolutely wild. He shared what he, like the, his projects that he was working on, which sounded absolutely fascinating. And then he, sh he shared uh, some of the more applied approaches. So he had also started a small company where he had actually designed, him and, and a group of tech people, uh, had designed a, a device that, uh, so, so the Altai is like covered in, in snowpack like year round, or at least most of the year. And when it is at its densest is when, the, I guess, when the snow leopards are, are primarily out and about and roaming around but it's also when the hunters come out to, to poach them. And so as a anti-poaching mechanism, what they've done is designed a device that you, they would actually stick inside of these log cabins that exist out there across this range. Um, and now they're not necessarily building new cabins, so they're gonna go and reuse these old hunting cabins, uh, the poachers that is. And when they do, the first thing that they do is they light a fire when they get in there. They're the only people out there, mind you. And so, so when they light this fire, if the device is installed in the log cabin, it actually triggers the device, which then basically dials the local ranger station based off of the temperature from the fire. So once uh -huh. the fire reaches a certain temperature, which is almost nothing, especially when you're comparing it, you know, the fire to the snowpack, it's like a really clear temperature spike. When that temperature spike hits, it sends a signal to the local ranger station and the rangers just march out and are like, hey, why do you have all these traps and guns? <laughs> and, wow. and it's like a really easy way to kind of prevent, you know, some of this, some of this illegal poaching. And when I heard about this, I was like, that is maybe the coolest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and so that was kind of like my initial like engagement with, I guess, technology. I, I really 
thought that, I don't know, something about, something about that just seemed really clever and simple. And I was like, why aren't we doing more of that? And the short answer is money. Mm. <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. really expensive to, to kind of develop these things. And unless it's got a direct sort of like military application or or other commercial application, usually it takes a while for these technologies to kind of trickle down. A great example is like the power drill. I don't know if you know this, but like the power drill that, you know, we Everyone's, you know, yeah, everyone has in their closet yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah, was developed for space by NASA. <laughs> so they developed oh. it to use in space to make it easy to, and so that technology eventually trickled down to, you know, now it's in everyone's home. But, right. but there's like a lag period, and I think I think there's a lot of things like that now that, the, I mean, AI included, that we're seeing now that it's kind of settling into our the conservation community and and becoming more um, apparent. The problem is that we're always a little bit like a half. To two steps behind. Yeah. And and yeah, the rest of the world is they're way yes. ahead. So So my last job before what I'm currently doing was with a tech startup. And while my particular role was something that I'm very versed in, it was people management. Mm-hmm. Being in a tech startup was one of the most valuable experiences I think I've ever had. Because it's so different than the conservation world. And going through that, just like you said, it's so, I don't know, they're, they're always at the forefront. They're thinking about things and then they action them. There is not all this bureaucracy. There isn't all this mm-hmm. question. They're like, okay, we know how to build this shit. Let's just freaking do it and see what happens. Yeah. yeah. And that was super <laughs> eye-opening for me and why I'm so excited to sit down with you about this stuff because... We're, we're to the point now where it's it's point critical. Like, mm-hmm. we are to the point now where we're going to start losing stuff. Yeah. And it's not coming back. Yep. But we now have this technology that it does exist in the world. I've been exposed to it. You've also helped me see <laughs> brand new things I've never heard of before. So, like, it's here. It's here. It and is, yeah. it <laughs> needs to be in conservation, which you are, you are single-handedly doing, which is fantastic. <laughs> So take us to that transition, though. So, okay, you, you were first exposed to this moment where you're like, oh, my God, tech and conservation, freaking genius. So <laughs> I'm assuming at this point then you're like, I need to do that. So then how did you get from this amazing story from Dr. James Gibbs to your actual AI work, where you're, what you're doing now? So how, what, what was that transition? How did you find AI? Like, how did you get into this thing? Yeah. Uh, well, so when I when I graduated from ESF, I immediately started looking for grad schools because again, this I knew I wanted to do something applied. I didn't know it was AI by any means, but I knew that I wanted to. Around what year was this to help put in perspective? When did I graduate? That's a great question. I graduated <laughs> in 20, uh, 2014 is what my degree says. I think I actually. So I in that time I I finished all my schoolwork, but I, I did an internship at the Syracuse Zoo for a year because I was like, I wanted to see if the zoo experience was similar to the pet store experience. And they're not, they're very different. Uh, I mean, there, there, are, there are some minor minor things, but, but generally speaking, it's a totally different um, thing. And I was actually really happy with my experience there. I learned a lot and it's certainly a world I would be curious to, to re-engage with. But yeah, so I, when I left ESF and granted, so like my, my dad works in life science and so he has always kind of like in the back of my ear been like, hey, like you should check out genetics and you should check out bioinformatics. You can make a lot of money in that. And so I, you know, I've always kind of had that as a curiosity, but up until that point, I never really thought of it as something that I could do and B, that would be, you know, something that 
would like have an intersection with what I do. You know, I, I always thought mm -hmm. of that as like health science and, and, you know, my mind was ecology and conservation and how did those things. And again, actually through some of James's work and actually his, his brother, Lyle Gibbs, <laughs> who works at Ohio state. Oh, ton, wait. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. He, um, he does genetics work through, um, with a lot of the same species that I was working on. And so, you know, reading, reading their work, I was like, this is genetics is the next big thing. And so I eventually found a, a master's program at SUNY Oneonta, which wasn't too far. It was still in upstate New York is where I wanted to be. Um, but I ended up working on, on wood turtles, which were very different. Up until then, I'd only worked on like Mossasaga rattlesnakes as an undergraduate and, and, and had my experiences at the zoo. But, but yeah, I started working on, on wood turtles and doing a genetic work with them. Now we're to the genetics part. Okay, so now you're starting to funnel into a different side of tech now. Yeah, because I remember that. So I graduated with my undergrad in 2014 as well. And mm -hmm. there seemed to be at that time, from what I recall, like a like a like like an emerging field of like, okay, it's not just us going bushwhacking in some swamp <laughs> somewhere to do work. It's like there are these other parts of science, like PCR was getting really big and like, mm -hmm getting all, you know, doing whole genomes. Like I remember like that was a really big thing at the time, like getting mm -hmm. like ev all the DNA for every single species, like completely coded out and like stuff like that. And yeah. I remember that at the time, but again, there wasn't really much conversation about any bigger tech. Uh, do you recall of anything at that time? That no, was no. Bigger? So at the time, the two sort of main things that were occurring in terms of tech was genetics and bioinformatics and applying that to, you know, at the population level or even deeper and looking at sort of like the biology of cells and things like that. Or it was stable isotope analysis, which a lot of folks like that was the hot new thing. It was like, yeah, like, let's look at trophic levels. We can figure out what every animal is, every organism is eating by going around sampling everything in their environment and then looking at their stable isotopes to figure out, you know, like how much of how much of these is, is in each organism, <laughs> which is, you know, was really cool. But also, you know, I, I guess for me at the time, I, I was so... I was very population focused. And so mm -hmm. the only one, like, although, you know, there's plenty to do with stable isotope analysis, I, fun fact, failed chemistry a bunch of times. So <laughs> chemistry I, was a bitch. I took for two it, and a half years. It was, <laughs> I, it was awful. I, so for anybody listening out there, I failed chemistry. I failed chem one like three times. That's, oh my God, I'm so yeah. sorry. It was horrible. I, it was, <laughs> and granted, like, it's self inflicted for sure. But, you know, the problem is transitioning schools. It makes that really hard. And then also just, um, you know, for me, right, like it's right there again. I was like chemistry, but animals, you know, organisms, I, I didn't like, nobody really bridged that connection until I got to ESF and I took the chemistry course there and they like actually did kind of make it, in, you know, make that connection for me and talked about things like stable isotope analysis and, you know, made it engaging for me. Uh, plus, I did really well in genetics, so I was like super excited about it. <laughs> but yeah, so so at that point, I, I was pretty dead set on doing genetics, and um, I mean, I, not to go off on a tangent, but when I got to SUNY Oneonta, my advisor at the time, uh, Dr. Donna Vogler, who is a botanist by trade, we were kind of discussing how to go about funding my work. I, I thought I was going to continue to work on Mossasaga rattlesnakes, like I did as an undergrad, and um, one day I I went. 
and sat down with her for like a weekly meeting. And this was like, you know, my third or fourth week. And, you know, at that point, I just got in a house. Like I, I was going, I was actually enrolled in the program, but living in Syracuse and like driving back and forth for like the first two weeks because I was it, like, when I got accepted, like the turnaround was so quick. And then I was like in and then I started. And so, you know, I, I got to her office and I'm like always in like a, like a huff puff because, you know, I'm like running across campus to get there. And uh, in our meeting, you know, I'm talking about potential funding avenues and we are looking at this one local land preserve that offers a fairly hefty grant. And so, you know, we're looking at the species that are there and um, I'm reading through the list and there aren't any rattlesnakes. And I was like, okay, well, like, here's the other species that are there. And we get all, you know, this one, this one, that one. And then I say wood turtle and she kind of, like, <laughs> I, I love Donna so much because when she gets uh, excited about science, it's like a eureka kind of moment. <laughs> and, and, and so she like was like, hold on, hold on. And like got up and was like, uh, uh, wood turtles and like darted out the door. And I was like, like, you know what do I mean? Do I like follow as a, you? What do I Yeah, as a new grad student, I was like, I, yeah, I should, That that's what I do, right? Yeah, follow her. So I got up, right? And so she like, ran downstairs into the archives of, of the, the basement of the biology building and is like unlocking doors behind doors and throwing, and we inevitably get to this room that's just full of boxes. And she's like, it's somewhere around here. It's somewhere around here. And she's kind of, you know, going through. And I'm like, like, can I, can I help with anything? Like, what are you looking for? Like, I don't, I'm so confused and lost. And finally she prized, she's like, I found it. Like, exclaims it. I found it. And she pops open this, this box and kind of puts it in front of me. And it's this, it's this entire cardboard box full of dried turtles. It's just filled with wood turtles, like, like 60 wood turtles with their plaster. So the bottom of a turtle is called a plastron and the top is the carapace for, for anybody out there. And, and so the idea is like, they all had their plastrons removed and filed away and numbered. And then their insides were scooped out and they all had these tags kind of attached to them. And I was like, I was a little horrified. I was yeah, like, I was like, what is this? Because <laughs> I, I started looking in the other boxes, yeah. And it was like 300 of these wood turtles, which I had never heard of anything like this before. Uh, <laughs> and it, so, so it turns out that back in the 50s and 60s, this professor named John New, who was, he was a uh, parasitologist, I guess had gone around upstate New York and just collected wood turtles and then like tried to find parasites like internally. And he collected a lot of them, like, too, too many. I'll say too many. I, yeah, I'll be honest. It's like a total all, graveyard. The, <laughs> it was. And they were they were fixed with formalin, which was definitely a little shocking too, uh, especially since I was just like handling them and like you shouldn't handle formalin. <laughs> so, you know, very quickly I came to understand that, you know, not only was this a really, really old data set, but it also represented like just a lot of some a lot of somebody's hard work like years that was their career um and it was just left here in a box and so i uh, very quickly kind of started connecting dots of like hey like i i want to go back and resurvey these areas and i want to use genetics to see if like anything has changed over time interesting enough the the region has like a, a massive highway now that what didn't mm. exist when he collected all these turtles uh and when i say massive it's huge it's like a four-lane highway with like you know like boulders holding up huge parts of it and so not easy for for a little turtle to cross. And so that's what I did my master's on was all of this genetic work. So after I finished my master's thesis in two years, I very quickly was determined to, to continue on. I, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I loved every second of research. Again, I found myself at that point sort of back in my comfort zone and back in that escape place. 
But yeah, so at that point I graduated and, and was like, okay, well, what now? <laughs> what do I do now? Um, I was fortunate enough to spend some time out in Hawaii um, just for a vacation, uh, but I got to swim with sea turtles and that was something I really wanted to do. And having already learned and became obsessed with freshwater turtles, spending time with sea turtles was really interesting because they were one of the few animals that I felt was really indifferent to, to me. And that was really interesting, uh, particularly, uh, so like the, the sea turtles around Hawaii, the Hanu, because there's like way less, if any, poaching pressure there, they are very relaxed creatures. And yeah, so it, it's almost like when, when you, they say like the dodo went extinct because like people could walk right up to them and they would have no idea what people are. So they just don't see them as a threat. It kind of felt like that. Um, I've actually had that experience with, with blue-footed boobies. Mm, yeah, <laughs> um, like, like you, <laughs> yeah, you just like walk right up to them and they're like, hi. And you're like, come on, where's the survival instinct here? Like <laughs> something, give me like, like, you know, whereas like if I walk up to a goose uh, at my local <laughs> pond, it's like hissing at me and I'm like, all right, goose. All right. <laughs> But, you know, so so just that experience kind of got me really curious about, you know, what they were all about. And so I knew that at that point I, I wanted to, I really wanted to work with sea turtles. And at the time I had, through a mutual connection, had found a, a professor at George Mason University uh, who was interested in working with me, really kind of gave me this really strong sort of... Um, What's a, what's a good way to put it? it? Really made me feel wanted as a graduate student, which you know, as an undergraduate, especially having transferred, um, you know, I didn't really have. Although I loved Syracuse, I didn't like really feel academically like wanted by you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it, even as a master's student, I kind of had trouble finding a program. I picked Oneonta for that exact reason because they seemed like they really wanted me there. But George Mason really went out of their way to kind of roll out the red carpet for me. And I was like, yeah, well, this, you know, it's projects working with sea turtles. They seem to really be engaged. They've got, you know, decent facilities. I was like, I don't see where I can lose here. And so I started off there and got into all kinds, all kinds of different sea turtle work, but it was, you know, to put it bluntly, I, I very quickly found myself in a really bad situation while I was there. And, you know, I, there, there are certainly good people at, at George Mason. There's there's definitely people doing excellent work, some of the, which I still stay in touch with, and they're, they're great collaborators. But as a program, I think there are some things that, not, and it's not unique to George Mason, I, it, like there are some things that need to be really strongly addressed. And, and I think it's, I think it's problems that like other programs do, do suffer from, but uniquely, I think George Mason suffers from several of them. Uh, so one is the lack of funding. You know, when I joined the program, there was sort of talk of like, Hey, like we've got collaborations with the Smithsonian and, and, you know, we've got these funding sources that we'll plug you into and like, you'll be funded, you'll be good. And at no point did that really ever kind of come to fruition, you know, monetarily wise, we were, most of the grad students in the program were making like, I mean, like 15,000 a year. And that is, especially in the DC area, that's like not super livable. I mean, and I think over the time that we were there, they like bumped it to like 16 or 17. But we as a collective, like really actually tried to get together and say like, hey, like this isn't really cutting it. And it fell on deaf ears, like very mm. deaf ears. Uh, they tweaked it a little bit, but it was like by like, you know, like, maybe like a thousand dollars and unfortunately like the the vibe that i you i got while i was there was was very much like this is what you get and 
you get what you get and you don't get upset, <laughs> which I, I think is like really a horrible saying, but it's, you know, they really like almost reprimanded people for, for complaining about it. And so the culture there was just not super healthy. There was also, there's also like several people are there who have been there for years, like even like went to school there themselves and just never left who have a very toxic, like, yeah, this is, this is fine. This is totally fine situation. And so, you know, between that and sort of just like feeling no, no support and feeling really listless in my, my research, I got three years into the program and had, had pieces for a dissertation. I had made contacts through my own sort of legwork, but really felt just underwhelmed with my experience. I was like, this feels not, it, something about this feels wrong. And then it was, I, I had a conversation with a few of my collaborators about that specific thing because basically uh, some of our funding hadn't come through and my advisor was like, okay. And I was like, okay, well, like, what can we do next? Like, how, what can I try to do to, and they're like, I don't know. And, and like, that's like a really, indifference is like, I don't know if, I mean, indifference is a really hard thing to overcome because if they had like a negative response, at least that's feedback. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, like at least they're like, oh, you're not working hard enough. Right. Or something like that. I don't know. That's at least something like I can take and, and do something with, but indifference is like a whole different level of toxic silence, ghosting, like I just, you know what I mean? And at that point too, you know, I, keep in mind, I, and I did this as at Oneonta as well. I've been working several jobs to try to like bridge that, that gap. I mean, I've worked at breweries, I've worked at distilleries, I've worked at uh, sushi restaurants. I mean, I've worked all over and, you know, so at that point, like getting creative and like how to fund this, because <laughs> again, I'm still like, I know what I want to do. I'm totally set on doing it. I'm going to do it. It's just, I need to figure out how to do it. Um, yeah, just getting creative was, was second nature at that point. And so, I, I, you know, and, and not to say that the whole experience was bad. I did get a grant through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for an ex, an exploration grant, actually. So this, this place that's behind me in the, <laughs> uh, it, it, on my digital background is the Tres Marias. And so it's a small island archipelago off the, the Pacific coast of Mexico, about 60, I think it's 60 kilometers off of San Blas. Mm. Um, and um, th this group of islands is super unique because it was actually found way back by C Captain Cook. So there's what? like records of like <laughs> Captain Cook coming to these islands and being like, there's so many turtles here that we can't, it's sort of like, I think like the Christopher Columbus thing, where it's like, or, or maybe not, somebody, somebody says, says, said it where it's like, there's so many turtles here that we can't sleep at night because they keep hitting into the boat. So like that idea is like totally foreign concept to me now in modern right. days that definitely doesn't happen. No. But, but the fact that these islands were essentially mostly uninhabited, um, one of the islands was a uh, Mexican naval penitentiary. Um, yeah, these islands though, like uh, we essentially were collaborating with folks in Mexico to just come out here and explore, uh, here and explore. It's gorgeous. Uh, to, the background to, looks amazing. Yeah, yeah. We were looking for uh, nesting hawksbills and and mm. we're trying just try to you know see if see if they're out there because hawksbills in the Eastern Pacific, which you know Brad talked about recently, they are essentially thought to be extinct. And so you know any nesting new nesting sites we can find is is awesome. So yeah, we camped. I camped on this island for for nice. uh, like <laughs> like 10, 15 days, something like that. 
A lot of scorpions, but <laughs> a lot of hermit crabs too, which I thought was kind of cool. They like rattle at night when you walk around because they all hide in their shell when you when you walk by them. But yeah, it's like really beautiful, uh, beautiful place. But um, yeah, so it, it wasn't all negative. Like I said, I still have some contacts at George Mason, but I knew that this couldn't be the only part of my research. And so I knew that I wanted to sort of transition out of there. And around that time, so as I mentioned, George Mason has a partnership with, with the Smithsonian. And so I thinking about like, hey, I need some place that's a little bit more academic. I want a better environment for myself. I thought like, okay, if I could just kind of like maybe, maybe try some of these courses that they offer, maybe try to like talk to just different people. Maybe I can find a different advisor. And doing so, I ended up talking with uh, Dr. Cody Edwards at George Mason. He pointed me in the direction of the Smithsonian Mason courses, uh, one in particular that, that was focused on bioinformatics. And actually, a great example of, unfortunately, kind of one of the ways that like that program isn't well designed, I had to pay for it out of pocket or I had to find funding because I couldn't use my um, teaching assistantship to pay for it. So I actually had to find a way to pay for this class, even though it's right in the suite of courses, it should fit right in. It's just like, it's little design things like that that just don't really advocate for you as a student. You know, they don't really help you out in any way. It makes it just that much more complicated. And, and mind you, like I'm speaking as a student who, uh, like I'm from the United States. I, you know, I'm also white, <laughs> right? And it's like, there's all these things that kind of like make this whole process easier for me. A lot of my colleagues who were international, who weren't international, but just weren't, like they ran into all of the the things that we hear about, you know, when, when we talk about sort of like conservation and ecology not being inclusive. They had all of my issues plus their oh, own. So, so it's just like, so it's like, I actually kind of feel really, I, I feel really lucky because I am um, to to have gotten sort of, you know, to where I am. Because like, given, given that some of them, like they didn't even get funded, this external funding or things like that because they couldn't apply for it. They couldn't apply for, for these small grants to help. They couldn't take these classes because they're international students, right? It's only for, you know, just like weird stuff like that. Mm. That's just, it's just yeah, like- Yeah, that's not cool. It's like extra hoops to jump through. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. It just, there's like a ton, like I said, I could speak for hours on, on just, <laughs> just that, but, but yeah. So I feel like you need some drinks for that one. Yes. I, more than, yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. We're off the whiskey. Let's go. Yeah. So, it, so I took this course, it was a bioinformatics course, and it's actually out in Front Royal at the uh, Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, which is SCBI for short, alphabet soup in the government. Um, and the instructors uh, were Dr. Klaus Kloffy and Dr. Rebecca Deco. And this was the first time, and like this is another issue with that program. Again, I'm not going to go into it, but <laughs> but but this was the first time I had found like an applied course where I like it was. This is these are things that are actually like we're going to do it here now. We're going to actually do it. You're not going to read about it like you will, but you're not just going to read about it. You're going to actually do it. We sat down, we annotated and pieced together a red siskin genome, which you know they're working on red siskins. It's like this little beautiful red bird. I think from. Central America. Somebody's gonna be yelling at me for that. <laughs> I'm not idea... a birder, so <laughs> but birders, you I... let us know. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And well, it's funny too because they're like, I guess in Europe they're like really common. People keep them. Every like city in Europe has like a Siskin breed. I, well, I don't know why I remember this, but every every <laughs> city in Europe has a Siskin breed. But the native red Siskins are like super endangered because they keep taking them to go breed them in Europe for their different like. You know, I don't know. Each little town has its own like. This is our variation. I don't know. Anyways, <laughs> I learned how to <laughs> learn how to put these genomes together, and I was really enthusiastic about it. 
And um, I started pestering Rebecca specifically about these genomes. And I was like, hey, I want to learn how to do this as well as you know how, to, how well to do this. And, you know, just the, the conversations that we had, and I started kind of talking to her a little bit more about my thought, like some hypotheses I had about, you know, um, applying these tools to Eastern Pacific hawksbills and things like that. Uh, and she, you know, we, we had this really great conversation and, you know, I was like, so can I, can I like drop by your office and like learn? And she was like, which I, you know, I'm sure at the time she was like, yeah, if he wants to come by the office one time, sure. No problem. She was like, yeah, sure. Come by anytime. But oh, I took did that. she know? <laughs> did she know? I took that very literally. Um, and, you know, I basically started going there, I want to say, bi- like, weekly to bi-weekly for at least, I would say, about three months. And so I would take the bus, or I'd walk to the bus station at George Mason, take the bus to the train, take the train into the city, and then and then hop off and then head into the Natural History Museum. And that, for me, was like, I think it was like an hour and 45-minute round trip. One, or one, sorry, one way. One way, it was like an hour and 45 minutes. And so, you know, it became this four-hour trip that I was making weekly to try to just... I, I knew that if I just kind of stuck around, that eventually I would, like, maybe fall into something. And, and, you know, again, too, while working, I was working other things and trying to, you know, make ends meet. And inevitably, Rebecca, you know who absolutely changed like the trajectory of my my career one day it was like you know you've <laughs> you've been here a lot <laughs> and I was like yes go on I know <laughs> I know you're like oh yeah oh, I, oh have I oh man oh no you noticed uh, me oh noticed, yes <laughs> yeah and it, you know it just got to the point where uh, she was like well you know if and, and, and at this point I had kind of already asked her to be on my committee and, and help me kind of figure this out. Because once I kind of laid out what I had at Mason with her, she was like, okay, it doesn't sound like you have a lot of direction. Like, let me try to help you with that. And just in our conversation, she, uh, she's the head of the data science lab. You know, she, she's been working doing genome assemblies, but she was like, you know, I've been working kind of in a smaller sector. It's a little bit on the newer side. Um, have you heard of machine learning? And I was like, <laughs> I have no idea what that is. Please tell. And so she she started describing for me um, machine learning and this project that had funding. And I was like, if it has funding, I will learn it. I want to figure this out. Like I I, just, I need something to I need a direction. And it got interesting really quickly because I, at first I was like, yeah, I want to jump into this head first. But I was also like, well, what if I can't do it? Like, what if I don't know how to do it? And she sort of started walking me through what machine learning is. And for those of you that, that, that don't know, so machine learning is sort of a subset of artificial intelligence. And essentially, the idea is you could, well, actually, an even subset of that is, is computer vision specifically. This project that she wanted me to work on was a computer vision project to develop an application tool uh, to enable indigenous folks in the Peruvian Amazon to essentially survey their own fish stocks, to to go and and uh, like get an actual and in, uh, initial assessment of like what do they have because the Amazonian rainforest has a ton of fish, <laughs> like the, the the diversity there is just crazy. And so, you know, I I think unless you're an ichthyologist, like 
you can snap a bunch of photos, but it doesn't really do you any good. And, and so the idea was Smithsonian was going out and doing these surveys and collecting these data and doing measurements and sort of all the usual things. But, but you know, parts of this land were eventually going to be developed for, for oil use. And so, you know, as, as sort of a um, precautionary step, Smithsonian wanted to develop this tool to enable the, the local communities to not only have agency and sort of like, you know, collecting their own data, but also to have a baseline and which future generations can kind of base, you know, should anything happen, they can look back and say, well, this is what we had and this is where we are now. And, and you know, and I think that type of protection is like, I think it's rare uh, because a lot of these communities are not enabled to collect them. Not that they can't do it on their own, but, but I mean, unless you have an ichthyologist in the community who's able to get paid to go around and sample every fish, right? Like it just... You can't go back and collect data, right? Like you, you can't go back in time and do that. So it's one of those things that I think if you can kind of do the work up front, it makes it much easier to sort of on the back end, say post difficulties, it's much easier to, to say, hey, we have this now and we didn't have this before, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like something's being impacted. Like clearly the data is showing that five years ago we recorded this amount of fish and, and now we're recording this amount of fish and at the exact same time an extractive industry came in between here and there. Yes. So, <laughs> You put it much more concisely than I did. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the kind of thing that that project sort of pulled me into. And very quickly, I found myself under like, like learning about machine learning, learning about artificial intelligence and really fell in love with it so fast because it, it, it is, it is at its bleeding edge. And it also like kind of it brought back the intersection of technology and conservation for me. And it felt applied, which it is. It is very applied. And that for me just, I mean, it started like checking all my boxes. You know, I was like, this is this is really interesting. This is really engaging. And learning how to do it changed my career, changed the entire trajectory of my career. Okay, so machine learning. We are officially in artificial intelligence and machine learning, which is yes. amazing. Like. Okay, so like you're at the forefront, you're here. Like, oh my gosh, we are there. So what exactly is it? So you're brought into this project and I'm like, now we have a definition, thank you, because that is very, very helpful. Because I mean, I don't really know until I started to do research for this episode. I was like, yeah. Alex, what is machine learning? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh. Yeah. I've heard these terms, but never in a conservation context, you know, which is super, super cool. So how do you use this? Do you have an example project that you could give me? Well, so, so do you want me to def define it first? I can define artificial intelligence for you and give you kind of a, a basic example. That way people at home can kind of uh, trace along with it. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I mean, th okay. this is brand new. Like, so okay, I, yeah, I yeah. guarantee to a lot of people listening, this is brand new. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll preface it by saying it's not as scary as it seems. A lot of people are like, it's a black box, it's math, it's it's really not as scary, and I can I, I will prove that to you uh, in a minute. But so the idea behind artificial intelligence, it's actually it's a different thing altogether than machine learning in that machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence, you'll hear this term get thrown around, is essentially any computer program that mimics human behavior. And so the way to think about that in the simplest context is your spam folder, right? Uh, so when you get spam in your spam folder, or at least this is how it used to work, when you'd get spam in your spam folder, the company that made your spam filter 
probably has a list of known websites and bad users that it's like, we don't want, you don't want emails from them. <laughs> and then you can also tell your spam folder, hey, I don't want any, I don't want any emails from, you know, Bob from HR or something like, you know what I mean? Like you can throw those in there and it goes, okay, well, anyone with the, the at hr.com address, you will filter those out. Simple as can be. That's essentially like a really simplistic version of artificial intelligence. Machine learning though, actually uses data to, to learn and to, I guess, catch the things that you didn't know you wanted to catch. So in the same example, in our spam filter, right, if we had a machine learning model, not an artifi- just an artificial intelligence model, but a machine learning model, which is still mimicking human behavior, uh, if we had a machine learning model that was our spam folder, every time that you gave it one of those websites, it would read your email and it would learn what a spam email looks like. It might be because there's, you know, I don't know, uh, unsavory words in it or unsavory photos or somebody, you know, some prince from some country is asking for, you know, money. Like, it, <laughs> yeah. But like all of those things collectively when read through are act, like that's data. And so it'll use that to sort of create a, um, I'll call it a cloud of data points that it goes, okay, well, like when a new email comes in, if it falls close enough to this cloud of data points, we're going to consider it spam and you'll never even see it. You don't have to tell me it's spam. I'll just, I'll just snatch it away. That's why sometimes things accidentally get pulled into your spam folder because there might be something about it. Like, you know, I don't know, maybe your, your crazy aunt or uncle is like sending you all capital letter email that's like, you know, Merry Christmas, happy birthday, you know, happy holidays or whatever. Uh, that might trigger it. And it's like, oh, all capitals. No, 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 no. Let's put that in there. And then it gets stored away in your spam folder. That is a machine learning tool. And, and so that's sort of like, in the simplest terms is kind of like the difference between those two things. So what I do is I actually do computer vision, which is a subset of even machine learning. It's wow, a version, we're it, getting it, layers it, down yeah, now. That's yeah, cool. we're, we're, getting, we're getting deep, <laughs> uh, which is actually like, to be honest though, like that's what it's called. That's, it's called, it's a form of deep learning. And so the idea is uh, when you create these machine learning models, you can actually add in, and I'll stay topical on this one because this might get get us too deep, but uh, you can actually add in these things called hidden layers, which uh, you can add in a ton of them and they allow you to sort of, instead of looking at things with linear relationships, you can look at things with more complicated relationships. That's as simple as I'll put it. And you use these things called neural networks that, that essentially mimic the way that our brain works. And so in these neural networks, you have like nodes similar to neurons in your brain, and you are just passing information through these. And so to take a step back, a more simplistic version of computer vision, right? The idea that a computer can see something really comes down to this idea that computers see pictures way different than we do, right? So like when you see a picture of if I were to pull up a napkin and draw the number eight on it and snap a picture of it and send it to you, right? You would see on, you know, when it, when it arrives on your phone, you would see a picture of a hand drawn eight. And that's, you know, that's how you interpret it. It's black, you know, black and white. And it's a picture of an eight, right? But to a computer, that's an assembly of white pixels and black pixels assembled in a very specific way. And the way that's actually interpreted is like, let's say I pressed really hard in the middle of it. And so that's darker, but then other parts of it are lighter. Like that is white, black, gray and like variants of all of these things have values, right? Like when you put them into a computer, they have each pixel has a value. It has an actual number assigned to it, right? So like if you had a, if you were like in Microsoft Paint and drawing just blue, right? Everywhere you scribble blue, the computer might be seeing that as like 
the number 25, right? Like uh, let's say 25 represents blue. It might just be 25s all over the screen, right? But to us, it's the color blue because that's what we're telling the computer to tell us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so yeah. it's pretty so much the, taking the visual world and putting it into like a number code, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's just taking pixels and flipping them into the numbers that are like because computers run on binary, right? You have ones and zeros. But like you know, as we as we have developed computer languages, they they get more nuanced. And so the way that photos work on your computer is that when you have pixels on your screen, they're actually the computer knows them as numbers, but we see them as pixels. So. When you get a giant picture that is all, you know, to us is a, is a picture, but to the computer is a, you know, a rectangle or a square of, of numbers, all that is is a, is a mathematical matrix. And so essentially what the computer is doing, the way it looks, the way it sees, the way it learns, is that it iterates through the image, looking at small sections of it, and overlapping sections of it, and essentially adding mathematical weights to things that help it get the answer right. So like I'll say, this is a fish picture. And so it'll go, okay, well, let me take one try at it. Let me take, a, let me study this and, and then take a test. And so it, it studies the image of the, the fish and then it takes the test. It always does terrible the first time because it doesn't know what it looks, it's looking at. But then it goes, okay, what things about this picture helped me, like if I got any of these things correct, what helped me, which of these images did I get correct? So it would say, for example, let's say we had a lot of pictures of fish from the side and they had fins, right? Like really specific kind of fin, that fin shape. By random guess, right, it would, on that first try, it's, it's just throwing mathematic weight onto all different types of things. If it found that it got pictures with fins on it correct, right, if I was trying to identify one fish versus like, you know, cats or dogs or whatever, right, the ones with fins would be the ones that like it would learn best from. It would then put weight on the fin on the, on the actual image, and then it would continue to do that. And, and you would actually see it get better and better because it starts to recognize fins, scales, the shape, general shape of fish. And so, you know, neural networks basically learn like people do. They just literally just are studying the images and then testing themselves. And then when they get certain things right, they go, okay, I'm going to add mathematic weight to that and, and double down on my knowledge of that thing. And then you continue to test, and it's that's all it is, just trial and error. You test and retrain and test and retrain and test and retrain. And eventually you have a model, a mathematic model that's like, yeah, I, I know that this thing is fish, and that thing is a cat, and that thing is a dog, and it's because it just kind of iterates through the image. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> okay. Would you like me to try to explain that in a different context? I can if you like. <laughs> no, that was really, really good. So, okay, so we, we know now how this works, and that makes total sense. It's just how mm. exactly we work. Like, that's how exactly we learn, you know? Yep. I mean, like you said, like, that very first time that it gets it completely wrong. Like, I'm thinking about that from, like, almost like a sports standpoint. The very yeah. first time, if I go out and try to play, I don't freaking know. Give Soccer. me a sport. Soccer. soccer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not play soccer as a kid. So, and my husband's great at soccer. So, like, when we go out and he's trying to teach me how to dribble and, like, kick, and I don't know where, I don't know where the ball's yeah, going. Exactly. It's terrible. Yep. It's terrible. Yep. But if I was practicing every single day, like it sounds like the machine learning tools are doing, mm -hmm. then by default, I would get better. So does this tool. So mm -hmm. that's kind of like the analogy that I was thinking of when yeah. you were doing that. So then let's take it back to... 
Well, I guess my next question I have when you were doing this, is it specifically image only that this process so, works on? Images so, only? So, so this is where it gets, gets a little tricky and is a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. Uh, so you can do this with all kinds of data. So, so images are, are usually, images take a lot of processing power. So they, the reason you need to use deep learning on images for the most part is because, like I said, standard machine learning is good for sort of linear, more simple problems, right? Like, is it this or is it that, right? Mm -hmm. Like really basic things, but like looking at numbers only. Images have tons of pixels, which is a lot of input data, which make it really complicated. The other thing too is like images can be different directions and sides, right? Like if I snap an image of a cat and it's sitting upward, or if I snap an image of a cat looking straight down, right? It looks like a circle. Right. If like right. If I thought, yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's like, but both of those things are cats. So that creates a really complicated problem that needs a lot of uh, computational uh, muscle behind it. So we actually use things like GPUs, which are graphics processing units, which are the thing that like any gamer out there will know what it is. It's <laughs> what you use to get like the awesome, high intense, really cool graphics. The idea is the same, right? To like manipulate and utilize and augment and sort of play with these these really complicated images, which are just mathematic matrix. You need a really strong, like se almost like a separate unit that's designed specifically for that, which is what GPUs happen to do. Um, so they're used in virtual reality and, and like I said, high um, cutting edge gaming because they're good at GPUs are designed to, to manipulate pictures, right? And so we use it on our photos because they're just really good at matrix math, <laughs> fat, <laughs> fast matrix math. So it's almost like this is a device to help you learn how to play soccer uh, within like minutes. Oh. Almost like the actual, like in the movie, The Matrix, where it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and like, like, like they now, upload it into the chip in yeah. their head, and it's like, whoa, yeah. now I can now do it. Now, yeah, now I know Kung Fu, right? Yeah, like exactly. Like, oh. Frog Magal, let's go, you know? Yeah, it, it's, it's like kind of like that idea, except for we're training a computer to do this thing. And, and sometimes it takes a little more time than, you know, a couple minutes, but, but that's the idea is it, it's rapidly doing calculations. So this is specific for image data, but you can also run acoustic data. Uh, through it. So music and sounds. So you actually probably have run into using machine learning every single day and not realized it. Great example um, is a lot of folks on Spotify have, the, uh, what is it? The, the I think it's the gene, the genus, genius, is that right? It's, it's like the tool you use to find music that you, it sounds similar to what you like. Right? Oh, oh, so you can okay, click it on right. the, you, you get what I'm saying? So the idea is like, it, basically uh, you've got this list of tracks uh -huh. that you know, they have tags associated with them, sure. Right. But but they also like have like beats and vibes, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's an actual audio track. Well, what I'm and Spotify, correct me, please send me an email if I'm wrong about this. But what I suspect that they're doing is they've iterated through all of all of like maybe like the last twenty songs that you listened to, and listened to it with the machine learning model, and then again with that machine learning model, we're making a cloud of data points. When uh, you want a new song and you go to that genius bar uh, or whatever it is, when you click on it, it pulls up a whole sheet of, of songs. And it's like, well, it, some of that has to do with the tags, sure, but some of that has to do with it's been listening to your music. And so it finds other, other music that you haven't listened to that's also kind of near your cluster of, cloud, of songs that you're listening to. That makes total sense. Yeah. You know how much music I listen to on Spotify? Yeah. And it gives, I have like, you know, your daily mixes. And they're spot on. I, it yeah. gives me an yeah. alternative metal. 
play mix. It has a classic rock play mix <laughs> it makes for me of like my particular kind. I like yep. a very specific kind of country and it definitely has that playlist down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My chill mix is like definitely the music I like. Yeah. You, you know, you're, that's a it, fantastic it, example. It's totally because it's been listening to the music with you. So that's kind of, it's both cool and also a little creepy. <laughs> uh, I've accepted it at this point. Yeah. It makes my listening experience hella better. So yeah. what, whatever at this point. So then the other way that you run into it is actually you are looking at it right now. So I am in, uh, I'm in a segmented space, right? This is a machine learning algorithm that, that's, that made this, uh, like my background's back there. I have, I don't, I'm not mm -hmm. on the beach. I don't know. I know we talked about it earlier. I don't, I didn't mean to fool you, <laughs> but no, but seriously. So, so what the, what the model is doing, right, is it's been trained to recognize human sitting at a desk pixels and then background pixels. And so it's it's just learned that like, because I'm moving around, right? It, right, this right. Is, and this it, is happening. Mm -hmm. it, it comes with me. That is actually, that's we call it a segmentation model. So, so not only can you use machine learning to just like tell you what is in a photo, it can also count the things in the photo. It can also separate the things in the photo. And then also you can use it on audio as well. And you can use it to like kind of track movement and, and things like that. You can also use it on video. A video is just multiple pictures in a row. <laughs> Play, played really fast. Yeah, so it can be used on all kinds of different things. And again, too, it can be used tabular data and other, other stuff. So. Well, that was amazing. <laughs> Freaking machine learning 101. Yeah. I know that that's really helpful because I've never had it explained like that to me before. So mm -hmm. thank you, Spotify, for using machine learning. You make <laughs> yeah. my every single day a lot better. <laughs> I do appreciate that. And, and yeah, and just also to hear how it works on images and stuff. And so, okay, so let's now apply this. We understand yeah. artificial intelligence, machine learning, and then the deep learning that you do, because these mm -hmm. images have so much things, essentially, pixels that need to mm -hmm. be sorted yeah. out to figure out what the hell's going on, mm -hmm. which that's really cool, that we just <laughs> see something and it takes that much computational data. Oh, I had another question. Yeah. When you said GPUs, that came from like the gaming world. Did it actually was that developed through the gaming world, or was that something else that was a, taken from somewhere else where gamers were like, "This is freaking cool, let's use it." Where did that come from? Yeah, so, so if I'm not mistaken, and again, I can already hear somebody tick, you know, <laughs> clacking on their keyboard. Um, so GPUs, uh, graphics processing units, their growth is absolutely due to the gaming industry, oh, uh, okay, and, okay. And, and in part, and in part as well, particularly uh, virtual reality. Um, and so, you know, just the need to be able to like have better, higher resolution, better lighting, higher, you know, just higher definition images in the games is, is yeah, it's been a major, major driver, which I, you know, I'm a huge fan of those things because I have a GPU. So I'm kind of like, I do both. But, you know, nowadays, actually, so, you know, th that has actually trickled into another industry has, uh, another couple industries have, have kind of jumped on the bandwagon here. So so GPUs, yeah, originally for gaming and for VR, and then inevitably somebody was like, hey, that's good at matrix math. We'll use it for uh, machine learning and deep learning. Now it's being used for like mining of cryptocurrencies and things like that, which I'll be honest with you. Can you explain you, that? Yeah, well, as much as I can. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. Not, well, I'm, I don't I'm, know. Well, so here's the, the, the minimum requirements. Essentially what, what cryptocurrency is, is a bit of data that has been unlocked by a GPU and that they call it mining. So your GPU will do intense math based off of whatever the 
whatever you're mining for is like basically it gives you a math problem and and you and your computer solves it right and when you solve it you're rewarded with a tiny nugget of data right like that's essentially the simplest terms so your really smart gpu is working on math sits there works on math works on math and then you are able to pluck out like a, a really small piece of data uh, that has value right and the reason it has value what is, the is data because of? That is a little bit above my pay grade, but okay, but, okay, uh, but what I, what I can tell you what I can tell you though is that the value of the item has to do with the fact that it is l sort of locked up in in um, blockchain technology, uh, and so the idea is that it's like a really secure piece of information, and currency is then assigned to it, and so you can buy and trade it, and it has value because it's it's really secure space essentially, um, and yeah. My point in bringing it up, though, is that you know, although I think GPUs are awesome, and I myself am a big gamer, you know, unfortunately, like the flip side of this, I think, is something as AI as a community needs to at some point reconcile with, is the fact that like there is nothing sustainable about utilizing these tools. Uh, and what I mean to say is, um, so when it comes to the actual development of the tool, there is a ton of rare earth metals that get harvested. That extraction process, although the mining company nece doesn't necessarily pay for it, somebody's paying for it. Uh, it's the, like some of these some of these extraction processes are horrible for the environment. Um, so there are there are like selenium mines and things like that that are these rare earth metal mines that essentially, you know, they'll extract it from the earth and they'll just like let it dry out in the open. And that covers a wide area, but the, the muck that is left over from that development is like, it's just toxin. Like, and there's like no way to fix it. And so it's just kind of left there. And so you have this like really interesting sort of parallel situation to sort of like the way we used to strip mine for gold and for silver, which we used to use cyanide to do that. And we were just dumping cyanide into the environment. Cool. <laughs> Uh, the, the idea is sort of the same, like a lot of this is unsustainable. And so like when we acquire these tools, you know, whether you get a GPU because you get really excited about machine learning or whether you want to set up a mining operation for Bitcoin or whether you want to, you know, just play awesome high-end video games, I think it's really important to to take a second and recognize that not only is there a dark trade for all of this, because a lot of it comes from illegal sources, also it's just inherently very unsustainable. So. Personally, I think that there is no better use case than sort of these projects that that I've been working on to utilize these these types of technologies. Because like even sitting here, like in our having our conversation, out of the periphery of my eye, I can see my computer running, right? But I can see my GPU, although it's it's processing what's going on here. But I could do that with a much smaller GPU. Now, granted, I use it for other things, but like the power usage that comes along with it, and just the fact that I had to purchase it, and you know install it and all that, there's a huge long line of sustainability issues that kind of c come along with that. So so, so I don't actually take it very, like, although the, the GPUs are really cool and I'm really excited about them and upbeat, I also, like, want to, I want people listening to this to recognize that, like, there's intention with this, with, you know, the purchase of these things and, like, you know, I, it's, I think that we need to be more intentional about everything we do. Uh, and I'm, like, a big propri uh, proprietor of that. So, yeah. So with that said, utilizing these tools for good going forward, I think is like something that I am a huge advocate, <laughs> huge advocate for. Because right now, like we have instances where like, unfortunately, we are 
utilizing machine learning for a lot of evil. Things like that, like facial recognition is a really common one thrown out there, but I think that the, the wielder of the tool is really the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So what I mean to say is like, there are instances of machine learning models being developed for the TSA, right? They, they want to develop a machine learning model to, in their eyes, they call it like recognizing, and I'm using quotation marks for anyone who's just listening and not, not watching the video, but you know, they call it like finding a terrorist, right? Like that's the idea. But when you look at, like if you were to go on Google and just type in terrorist, right? Like you're, I'll just say this, you're going to find images of a certain type of person who looks a certain type of way, not because they're actually terrorists, but just because that is what society has kind of like regurgitated, labeled as, labeled as a terrorist. Um, and so there are actually models. There's a really great book called The Atlas of AI, which uh, I recommend for anyone who wants to learn more about AI. And it's an easy read. It's not a technical read. It's like I said, it's 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 a very easy read for anybody just entering into, you know, learning about this stuff that talks about all of these issues I'm describing now. They talk, they go on and talk about how, you know, actual models have been based off of data like this. And it's like, like very biased data and the computers doesn't know any better. Right. right? It's, it's just it, it, it's it's racist data. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's the best way to put it. You know, it's funny because because some folks uh, when I like I, all the time it comes up, we say like AI is inherently racist. And that, I guess, is too simple for some people. They're like, well, the, a computer can't be racist. But it's like, OK, well, then you're just making me say more words. But the, the truth of the matter is, it's like the data that it's based on is racist, right? It's not rooted in in reality. And so, you know, another great example of this is like, if you were to Google, there was a time period, it's actually better now. I tried this recently because I was like, I wonder if that still holds true. Um, if you were to Google healthy skin, the majority of photos you would find would be white people. Uh, and so if you built a model based off of that, you would run into an issue where Anytime it, it, you know, photographed or what, whatever you're using it for, if it photographed a person of color, it would say that they didn't have healthy skin. Now, I know it's just like, people are probably thinking like, well, I would just avoid that, right? But you have to remember that a lot of the folks utilizing this technology are literally just turning profits and, and like, if I'm a data scientist trying to get data, it's very easy for me to just make a, make a short Python script to drag 10,000 images off of Google of my different classifications and then put that into a model, run my model, train it, and then have an output and then give my model over and thank you for my payday. Uh, it takes a lot more effort to go, okay, is this model representative of the thing that I want it to look at? Is it true to reality? And is there any like dissonance between those two things? You know, like is, is, there, is there something I'm missing? So a great example. So you talked to Brad about our seashell model, looking at real versus fake data. This is one of the coolest projects I've ever gotten to work on. I well, love it. Well, go into it, that. Go into that. Go well, into the whole sure, thing. Sure, 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 sure. Well, so, <clears throat> so as Brad mentioned on the podcast previously, uh, we have created a model to differentiate between real and fake hawksbill sea turtle. Hawksbill sea turtles are globally threatened, they're endangered. And unfortunately, like in places like the Eastern Pacific, they were thought to be extinct for a period of time because the trade, essentially, this is people going out, harvesting them, and then manufacturing their carapace, their shell, into bangles and, gla and, and glasses and necklaces and tiaras and combs and like just stuff. This basically sent their numbers um, uh, 
And like I said, we thought they were extinct at one point. Uh, so the idea is essentially Brad, who's a master at, at identifying. It's funny because in the podcast, I heard him. He was like, Alex has gotten pretty good at it too. And I'm like, Brad, that's very thoughtful of you to say. But <laughs> he is a master. I kid you not. He's a master at identifying these things. Um, and I, I'm okay at it now. I'm okay. I'll say that. But he's got way more time uh, looking at different items. So, but yeah, the idea is that to build this model, like the, the goal ultimately is to give purchasers agency to know the difference. Um, I will say that one way you can know the difference is that the sea turtle will be actually like way more expensive. So it'll be like, here's a brush. Mm. And it's like, it's a $400 brush. Now, granted, for anyone listening, I have short hair. <laughs> so maybe there is $400 brushes that are worth it, but I can tell you that if it's between one that's made of sea turtle and one that's made of plastic, the one that's actually made out of plastic will probably work substantially better. That's That would be my guess. But ultimately though, you know, my point is, other than like price or like burning the actual material or genetically testing it, unless you are trained to identify the stuff, it can be, it can be kind of hard. So... What we've done is try to essentially, <laughs> I've tried to put Brad in your pocket. I've tried to put an expert in your pocket. So so we went out and collected a ton of data. I mean, several thousands of images, thanks to the Sea Turtles network of a lot of volunteers, uh, definitely a lot of conservation professionals who, you know, I would take a second right now to say thank you for, if, if they ever listen to this, thank you for your contributions because we just, this data set didn't exist prior to all of them kind of putting the time together to collect it for us. And then us going through and annotating it, going, this is a real thing, this is a fake thing, this is a real thing. And some of those things were actually genetically tested as well. People sent over things that they had either burned partially and took a picture before they burned it, or you know, th just some of it was actually ground truth. And so uh, Brad's actually got Sea Turtles, has this really awesome visual guide that kind of tells you how to tell the difference between real and fake items. And it has to do with, you know, uh, real items, they're a little bit more see-through. Um, the pattern is a little bit more chaotic, a little bit more jagged. Whereas when you look at something made of resin, uh, or in some cases coconut, or like actual seashell, not sea turtle shell, seashell, like conch, those things have really, really specific patterns, particularly resin. So if you were to look at a pair of glasses that are made of tortoiseshell pattern, but they're made of resin, <clears throat> when you look at the clear areas, uh, there'll be like almost like an ink stain kind of hue to the coloration. Also, like they're usually a lot more rounded on their edges. So there are visual cues that you can tell about the item that give it away. And I have, I, I was skeptical of this at first, and then I have seen Brad do multiple tests doing <laughs> visual identification. We're not like, you know, we like, we're talking to collaborators overseas and they're like, they're like, all right, well, uh, let's just see how you do. Let's see how the model does. And, you know, just I'm just curious. I want to see if it works. Send, you know, they'd send over like, you know, 50 images. And it's like, you know, I'd get like 40, 45 of them right. Brad gets all 50 of them correct. And, <laughs> you know, at that point, like the model was getting like, you know, 49 of them correct. So I was like, all right, like 48 of them correct. I'm like, uh, okay, there's something to this. It actually, it's a real thing. I'm not just, <laughs> I'm not just making it up. But so we made this like really cool model that that functions really well and is, uh, you know, we're trying to thanks again, thanks to the Bentley Foundation. We've funded this uh, and now we're, we're starting to partner with other groups as well. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that yet, but other groups are, are starting to play into it. And so we're going to be kicking off this app really soon. Um, 
and uh, hoping to get it into the hands of tourists and conservation professionals and potentially, you know, law enforcement and, and other folks, anybody who wants to monitor the sea turtle trade, basically, um, we're hoping that they'll, they'll utilize it because honestly, it really does put an expert in your pocket. I'm, I'm really happy with where, where it's at and kind of where it's going. And it's really exciting because it's, it really, I think it has the potential to be extremely disruptive to the illegal trade. And I just hope that we can, I hope that people are, are willing to give it a chance because if they do, like I said, I think, I think we can, we can make some waves. But so coming back to what I was saying before though, this is actually really important because this, this I think really drives home this point. The seashell uh, data, originally when I looked at this, I thought, okay, well, I'm working on sea turtles. I'm working on seashells or, you know, uh, uh, sea turtle shells. I don't need to worry about any of these, the issues I was just talking about in terms of, you know, potential racism and AI and things like that. So a lot of our data um, comes from, as it turns out. So we went out and scoured and tried to find as many photos of, of, of real and fake items as possible. Uh, I went out and collected a, a ton of item, items. You know, I went out to... Um, just like places, locally farmers markets, snapping images of just like booths and, and single items, things like that, just collecting data. Our collaborators though, where a lot more of this trade is prominent, are from Central and South America and also parts of East Asia and things like that. The data that was coming in was wonderful, but, but the issue is most of our fake items were coming through me and other people from the United States. Now, some very few real items were coming from people from the United States, but that was mostly conservation professionals and it was like two or three and one of them was Brad, right? <laughs> and so the idea is like, that's where most of that data came from, especially since we were some, some of the folks who we were asking to get the real data, right? The real Hawksbill sea turtle data were mostly from the countries it was most abundant in. And we wanted them to spend their time, focus their time on that. And so in doing so, we unintentionally, because people's hands and arms and faces and body parts get pulled into, and, and their language gets pulled into the model. And so we had basically a situation where the real, anything that was labeled as real was being listed, or sorry, any, anything that was real was often associated with people of color. And anything that was fake was often associated with people who were white. So... It just because like their hands and their fingers, it's just, things were in the data. So, so it got to the point where I like basically took a bunch of data from Brad and I was like, give me like your hand holding things, both real and fake. And lo and behold, it was right there. It was counting both wow. the real and the, even though it was like fairly accurate overall, like mm -hmm. when, when nothing with no body parts were in, in the image, it was right there. And I was like, I can't believe I like this thing that I knew about, but didn't think because I was working on animals would, would be a part of my study. Once again, people, society, you know, comes back into the picture and it, it really, it really could have been a disaster. You know, it could, that could have been a huge, a huge issue. And if it, if I wasn't like thinking about things in this manner, it, we would have inherently have released unintentionally, you know, released a model that, could have had really bad repercussions, right? It, theoretically, right, and there's that's a situation where, you know, 
you have, I don't know, white smugglers who are able to get away with stuff and potentially other people or other people who are just trying to bring in like the, their, their uh, knickknacks that they bought while on vacation. You know what I mean? And they get, they get stopped and then it's a problem for them. Like that is, that is the exact thing that like I wanted to avoid. <laughs> so, so we've gone out of our way to try to like remove that from the, from the situation and remove that from the model. And I think we've done a pretty good job, but that's, I guess that's like one of the big things is I, I wanted to kind of like connect those dots for everyone listening because it's just, uh, it is, it's always there. It is always there. And I know that not everybody, like there's a, a whole spectrum of people that aren't, you know, that tune that out, but they're wrong. <laughs> I don't know what to say. They're wrong. So, um, yeah. Oh gosh, that was so good. And thank you for being so transparent about that because yeah. someone like me who I'm not a part of the tech world. I enjoy tech and I understand fully that it's here to stay. And I hear a lot that there are tech biases, that tech is inherently racist. And like for someone like me who doesn't know any better, mm -hmm. I'd be like, I, I can understand why maybe the scientist just doesn't know. That's, they, they don't understand their own biases to put the data in. Mm -hmm. But to, to hear it so blatantly... <laughs> described in a yeah. real example. God, thank yeah. you for that. And being open and honest and vulnerable about that too. Cause I think that that might be one of the best examples I've ever heard, period. Like hands down. And I know all about that project mm -hmm. because of Brad and you and talking yeah. a lot of, with both of you offline, off the podcast about some other fun things um, <laughs> <laughs> dealing with this. Thank you for that. And also thank you again for taking the time to not l unleash a, a could-be-disaster <laughs> yeah. app into the world that was just trying to do good that could, out, that could have stopped a lot of innocent people. Yeah. Well, so that's I, I feel like that's also something I want to piggyback on that really quickly is, mm -hmm. is that the thing that is so... So the learning part of ma about machine learning is not that it is like you do teach it how to learn things, but you aren't always certain about what it learned. And that is oh. very scary and it's very powerful because th there could come a time where like what we were just discussing, like where, I mean, I'm literally trying to create an application to identify real versus fake sea turtle knickknacks, like Boiling it down to something, uh, although there's a cool conservation implication, right? Like, but like the fact that that could have, like, could potentially harm somebody for no reason other than that their skin color is different is like, those two things seem like they should, like, unless it hit me in the face like it did, like, I, so it's like, I, we don't know what the repercussions are of all of these things. And so it's really important to go out and get feedback. If, if, if you are thinking, if anybody's listening, if, if you are thinking about, trying to utilize these tools, it's important to do your homework and also get a lot of constructive, diverse viewpoints on, on this. Brad and I, although we were, we were like searching for funding for this, there has been, there have been a handful of people that we've gone to and said, Hey, like, give us your opinion. What, like, just give it to us straight. And, you know, they've absolutely brought concerns up to us and we have tried to adapt and learn and, and listen biggest thing is listen to what their concerns were. And, you know, so that actually kind of like was one of the primers that got me thinking more about this was like, I need to make sure that that's not happening. <laughs> it's, it's just like people bring it up. Not that that specific thing would happen, but that 
something bad, it is such a powerful tool that something bad could happen. And unfortunately, financially, like we're a small unit. It's just a couple of us, right? These big tech companies do not give a, a shit. They don't give a single it. shit. They don't give a fuck. They really don't. They, they, they really don't. And it and it's it's really concerning because you know we've had conversations with big social media groups that in their in my conversations with them the only thing like like having conversations about like hey like this is a really bad thing that it's been like do you like would you like to come work for us like like a panel of people and it's like well, no but like can we focus like what's the problem can we focus on the problem and they're like basically trying to be like you know we won't talk about this externally because I don't know why, right? So they just don't really, I think they, I, I, I don't know. There's no incentive for them to do the due diligence to, to, to pr- try to prevent this type of thing from happening. It's awful. It's really awful. So yeah, I don't know. It's not, it's not all pretty. <laughs> it's not all pretty in, in, in deep learning, but, but there is good. There's a lot of good work happening for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think that to... One of the big reasons why I wanted to have you on is because we only hear of those scary headlines. And to know that there is a side of this that is being used for good. And we can sit down and talk to a person doing good with this right now. Like you are sitting down talking with me being like, yes, some people are using these tools for bad, but I'm using these tools for good, and this is what it can be used for. And I have examples now. And yeah, and so that's why I'm so grateful for you to come on and talk about these things and also teach us both ways. Be like, yeah, some of the stuff you are hearing on the news is true. I don't know what to do about that. I mean, I don't know what to do about that. Like, if you have a tip, great. But also... (laughs) there is a lot of really good things that can come out of this. For example, potentially really disrupting the illegal wildlife trade. What Mm -hmm. you and Brad Mm -hmm. are building right now could be revolutionary. And who knows what it'll be applicable to in the future. Mm. And which is what I'm really excited about. And you listened to that episode. So I was like, Brad, how can you save my big cats? Can you save my big cats right now? (laughs) They're so trafficked. Can you? And he's like, Brooke, I don't know. Come pump your brakes. I don't know about that stuff. Maybe one day they can be used for big cats. But yeah, so that that's one of the one of my big motivators is like, yes, there is a space for this in conservation, and it does exist, and we have a real person and a real example doing it. You know? Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. That's no, true. It's very yeah. true. Yeah. No. It's it's exciting. This is going to sound very funny, but so earlier you were like, you're the person doing it, and that's true. I am doing it, but but there are a few other people working in sort of lateral spaces. And I don't want to be the only person. I'm lonely, everyone, everyone, everyone at home listening. I really don't, I don't want to be the only person working on this stuff. And a lot of folks in the data science lab, mind you, are. And, and we, we do, like I said, we, we do have a few other people, but we could probably count them on two hands, I imagine. And if not, maybe like, maybe an extra finger or two. I don't, you know, it's really, there's not too many of us. There's people, like I said, there's people also working on like parallel things, but not anything in terms of applied. And so I would actually, if this conversation has spurred any interest in folks to learn more about AI, I I would say, I already mentioned the Atlas for AI book, but the best way I think to learn these tools, and I think you don't need a PhD, although I'm a, I'm a, 
I, I'm a PhD candidate now at the University of Maryland. I, I uh, failed to mention that, that I've uh, transitioned <laughs> over, but, but I'm a PhD candidate now. At the, I, you don't need it for, for this. I am only doing it because I started on this journey and I want it for myself. Um, but you don't need a PhD to do machine learning. A really great way to get into it is look up Jeremy Howard, who runs a program called Fast AI. And the whole concept is to uh, make neural networks uncool. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, like only exclusive things are cool. So he's like, all right, well, I don't want to make it, I won't make it exclusive. Um, Jeremy, all of his assets are, are free and they're online. And I found them to be very approachable. And um, the, the purpose is to, to be able to teach people how to use these tools without, like I said, a PhD. So hopefully I've made it less scary for everyone. <laughs> um, and I've, of course, I'm always happy to like answer, answer questions and things like that in regards to it. Yeah. Good. <laughs> awesome. And, and I think, too, so you have like one very specific example of like how this is so applicable. What do you see as the future of this? Where is this going to go? I mean, I can see maybe a point where there's going to be some sort of tech in everything we do. Are you seeing that? Are there other applications or what can you predict or think is going to happen in this space for conservation specifically? Yeah, it's a good question. I do believe that. So I mentioned how I feel like these technologies sort of trickle down. I firmly believe that this will become... Sort of like we were we were talking about stable isotope analysis and bioinformatics. This will become a new, a completely new. It, it, it arguably already is is a new field that will hopefully be proved to be as disruptive as we were talking about. I mean, honestly, there are so so many applications. Speaking of which, if, if you if you're out there listening and you have data. <laughs> Please, by all means, come and, and talk to me about it. I, I, I would love to talk about it. But I mean, the possibilities are, when I say they're they endless, they really are. It's a case-by-case -case use, but at the same time, it's a picture is a picture is a picture, right? So it can be of any species or, or anything like that. So yeah, the possibilities really are endless. I, um, I really hope that there comes a day, well, I'll just say this. Uh, something that I'm working on is I, I think there might be a, a, a method for us to use these tools to sort of more objectively define species. And I am hoping that there comes a day where everyone doing any sort of ecological field work is going out into the field. And when they capture their seal, their their tiger, their you know, a capuchin monkeys, whatever, like they are snapping photos of them in a deliberate way. So just so as to capture that data. So later on, when we might lose it, it's it's there and we have it and, and we can analyze those data with machine learning. Um, and I'm hoping that that becomes a part of everyone's pipelines because it's, it. I mean, I, I know a hundred turtle biologists right now that have Hard drives full. Some of them are, are unfortunately deceased and in their homes are just hard drives of pictures of turtles. And it's like, it's there, you know, it, we just have to go and, and try to, you know, utilize it the best we can. So. Yep. <laughs> and I'll just give a little spoiler alert that Alex and I have been in conversations about some stuff. <laughs> Some essentially big stuff. No, I'm no one's saying what I'm not saying what it is. Okay. okay. Well, you heard Brad's episode when I was like, yeah. Brad, we are talking offline. 
Everybody, update. When I talked about Brad offline, I was like, who's Alex? Can I talk to Alex, Brad? Brad's like, yeah, sure, you can talk to Alex. I'm like, hi, Alex. (laughs) My name is Brooke. (laughs) Um, I have some really big projects that I want to do with you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I also on that note, too, Alex is amazing. If there is something that you can think of. Thank you. That's whoever is listening now where you could see this application um, I guess I will definitely link to like Brad's episode and anything that you're doing and then also the app that's coming out. So mm-hmm. for examples of that, then let's keep getting freaking AI out for good. Like let's yeah. ke- continue this on. We, I we would need love that. to use that. Yeah. And you're going to graduate. You need more work. I'm yeah, getting you true. some more work. <laughs> but he it's doesn't very- need just me. <laughs> I still got to put this massive database together. We're working on it. We're working on it. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Oh, yeah. It's going to be freaking epic. <laughs> it's going to be sure awesome. sure everyone's like, Brooke, what are you talking about? You will know. I promise. You promise. Yeah. No, we're going to make I'm, this happen. I'm excited. When, 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 we get it, when we get it functioning, you should let me interview you. <laughs> okay. And then you can tell me about it. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> Oh, God. That'll be like the, oh, you have to teach me all the big words. Yeah, yeah. No, you'll, oh, no. You'll, you'll know, I mean, like, yeah, Brad, I feel bad for Brad because I, um, yeah, there's a learning curve, but it's, uh, I'm very confident in his ability to answer questions. So, um, yeah, yeah, you'll get it. You'll get it. It's good. good. It's, it's good. It's all good stuff. Oh, good, so. good, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Taking what I had done previously and then we're just making it like a million times better and way more impactful. <laughs> it's essentially yeah. what we're going to yep. do. So. Yep. Yeah. So call to action, anybody. Reach out to Alex. He's incredible. He's doing s- brand new stuff that I've never heard of before in the field, which is insanely <laughs> exciting. And that's why I'm like, you're my best friend now. <laughs> We're going <laughs> to build some cool shit together. <laughs> yeah. But yes, Alex, is there any final piece of advice or a message or anything that you would love to share with everyone listening? Yeah, so I um, I think a, a theme throughout my life has always been uh, failure um, and sort of running into obstacles that are sometimes really big. And now I was fortunate enough to have this sort of directionality. Not everybody is that way, but I, I, I don't think people should be afraid, especially if you're like a young conservation professional or, or want to be a young conservation professional early career. I would say uh, don't be afraid to fail because that's what we all do. We all kind of fail. Uh, 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 I hate to say fail upward, but like, you, you know what I mean? Like, and you have to continue to reinvent yourself and you have to continue to get creative and find ways to make it work. If it's what you want to do, you need to find ways to w- make it work, which is way easier said than done coming from, from me because I'm, I'm white. <laughs> but I mean it. It's, you know, I think for anybody who is out there like trying to figure out what they want to do in conservation relax your idea that like, I want to work on this one thing. You might come back around to it at some point later in your career, but focus on getting your skills, focus on, on just learning how to do unique things and then apply it, right? Find something you, you love and then apply it to the specific area you want to work in. Because I think that is the biggest downfall I see with a lot of grad, uh, undergrads and, and even, you know, masters and other PhD students is, you know, they're like, I want to be the world's 
most, you know, I, I basically, I, I want to be E.O. Wilson, but for, you know, this one species of fish. And it's like, well, that's great. But like, does that get you a job? Does that get you paid? Does that get you an academic position, right? If that's what you want, or does that get you a professional position unless they're hiring for somebody for that specific thing? So I think, you know, going, I want to stay in this field. I want to learn skills that make me widely applicable is kind of the best thing you can do for yourself. You want to become your own advocate. And the easiest way you can do that is fill your tool chest full of full of tools and don't be afraid. You know, so, uh, there's a lot of, I have a lot of skills that I don't use, you know, like I don't, I don't use misnetting, but I learned how to do it. <laughs> you know, I, I, a lot of stuff. So yeah. Oh yeah. Just when you said that, I was like, I was professional shit scooper. I was a zookeeper <laughs> yeah. and yeah. all these things and I can clean yeah. like nobody else. I don't yeah. do that anymore. I can, but I can also, place. Yeah, I was gonna say I can make a I make make a mean uh, whiskey sour too. You know, like well, like a, I'm gonna I take ten, you up on bar. that. So. <laughs> yeah, I yep. will judge your old fashioned. I'm fair. I know my, I know my way around an old fashioned. So <laughs> <laughs> I will take you up Heck on yeah. that. They're like Brooks, all about that. Yeah, I talk about it all the time. But and if anybody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get in touch? Oh gosh, all kinds of different ways. Let's see. The easiest way is probably through Twitter. Uh, so I'm at. AJ Robillard, are spelled R-O-B-I-L-L-A-R-D. So at AJ Robillard uh, on Twitter, definitely easy to get a hold of me there. I am on the Smithsonian Data Science Lab website. My email address and other things are on there. Or message me through something like ResearchGate or just send me, like I said, send me an email. That that works too. So I'm, <laughs> I'm easy to get a hold of. Awesome. Gosh, Alex, thanks again for coming on the podcast. I cannot wait to just share everything that you taught me and taught everybody <laughs> else. Like, like I said, you're at the forefront of the next wave of conservation and really excited <laughs> to see what you do and maybe this amazing project we're putting together. I think it's going to be awesome. I'm not <laughs> going to lie. I, I, I'm really excited about it. So I'm really happy we're, we're collabing on it because it's going to be cool. Oh, so. awesome. Well, <laughs> thanks so much, Alex. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>